Welcome to On The Road, a show where automotive marketing professionals can learn from one another's journey. This week, we have a very, very special guest, the founder of AM Electronics, John Concialdi. He gives us some great insight and a peek behind the curtain on how he created this iconic brand. One topic in particular that stood out to me was how he grew the business by decreasing the size of the business. It's good stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, let's go. So, my name is John Conchialdi. I'm the founder of AEM. My employee number is one. I'm a mechanical engineer, pilot, and kart racer, and off-road racer, and Bonneville racer, all that. I don't know what else to say. It's just, I've been doing AEM for 31 years now. Probably should been the largest part of my life. That is probably the world's biggest mic drop of anything. Like, I founded AEM. Bye. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So let me, let me ask, let me ask actually, how did you get started in all this? Like what made you just want to do this work? Yeah. And it, okay. It's a little long. I don't want to belabor too much. Long, but long, kind long of is fine. Interesting all right. Interesting story is my first degree I got is in commercial flights. I wanted to be a pilot. Hmm. And so I went and got my private pilot license and actually moved up to flight. Back in the day, there were three people that flew over planes, one of which was a flight engineer. So the pilot, co-pilot flight engineer and DC nine jets had flight engineers. And that's about as high as I made it. And then I went to the air force, tried to get in the air force. Mm. And they said, dude, you can't hear. You have a cyst on your tailbone. Vietnam is just ending. Why the hell do we want you? I was pretty butthurt. But at the same time, when I was in school, I worked at a foreign auto parts shop in West Covina called Bat Gion which mm. stands for British Auto Parts and George Newark, mm-hmm. whose name, you the Newark name you'll come to know. I worked for, I was really good with Weber Carburetors, and I ended up working at the Weber Carburetor R&D division for Bat Gion and then Redline. They, they, they kind of, my boss from Bat Gion went to Redline, and then I, he took me with him, and this British guy named Gary Pollard. At that point, I was thinking, like, God, what am I going to do? And he said, you know, mate, you would really do good in the automotive industry. You seem to like it a lot. And I, I always tinkered with Volkswagens and stuff like that when I was that age. Anyway, I was building engines and stuff. And so I hopped over the hill, went to Cal Poly in Pomona, because it's right near Mount Sac, which is right at my uh, AS and commercial flight. And while I was in school, I worked doing R&D for Weber Carburetor for Redline. And then uh, it kind of progressing. I've always been a mechanical guy. I mean, I've had, I used to have a, a methanol burning lawnmower. I couldn't, my mom would never let me get into cars. <laughs> so my neighbor was a drag racer. And so I cut grass as a kid and you go around the neighborhood and we would put in, first we tried the Cox 049 uh, uh, nitromethane fuel in my lawnmower and burned it up quickly. <laughs> so my neighbor, the drag racer, he said, all right, dumb kid, let me help you. Yeah. And we ended up converting the thing to methanol. And I couldn't have many bikes. My mom was a nurse. There's no way she's let me on anything dangerous. But yeah, that's where my tinkering began. Gary said, do you like it? And I finished up school and I did R&D for Weber up to uh, 1987. 
And then we started AEM October 1 of 87. Um, that, that actually has an interesting story too, that day, which I'll tell you about in a second. Um, yeah, because I want to know about that. So, you know, what happened, car waiters, as you know, they got phased out because of emissions. And when I was at Weber, we, I think we were the first carburetor company ever to get an executive order from the state of California for an aftermarket carburetor. We called it the Street Lethal Program. And uh, we actually did very, very well because all these Datsuns and Toyotas would have failing carburetors on them. Mm-hmm. And we made a really nice carburetor that would retrofit onto those vehicles and be emissions compliant, cool. uh, which allowed us to really, really move ahead of everyone. I was in contrast with Steve. I was on the tech committee with Steve Murphy back then. And they were like, nah, we have to fight them. We have to fight them. We have to fight them. I'm like, guys, these guys hold the trunk cards. You're not going to fight the ARV. Yeah, you got to work with them, Mm -hmm. which we did. And so uh, that went pretty good. But as you know, carburetors went by the wayside. Fuel injection came on. So that end was clearly spelled out by emissions laws, which, Mm -hmm. to be honest with you, is great. Mm-hmm. You know, perversely, emissions laws has given us the insane performance on cars that we have today because they held our hand in the fire and made us get good economy and made us have cars that had fuel injection and stuff. And sure, it was a rocky start, but God, look where we are now. Right. Yeah. We're, we're living in the golden era. We thought we had the golden era back in 1970 with Boss Mustangs and Camaro ZL1s and all that. And today's cars would run circles around and give them change by the time they were done. (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's real true. Well, you know, it's kind of funny on the car side of it. I was joking with a buddy of mine about how today's like two liter, you know, F20 coming out of S2000 could make more horsepower than a car back in the 70s now. No problem. Like all day, all day, every day. Right. Um, And then with the, you know, with the advent of the internet now, you know, there are, there are more people you have more people who have more access to more information than ever before. And so you can come up with more crazy ideas than I you know, ever thought possible. Like, and the one that's been weird for me lately, and this is me digressing a little bit, but the one that's been weird for me lately was um, K-series swaps and S2000s. Because yeah. I was reading, I was reading about someone who put a K24 and an S2000, and the fanboy part of me first went, "Oh my God, why would you do that?" And then I stopped in the minute and went, "Because you gain 400 cc's of displacement and have torque for a cheap motor, you can get everywhere." And the instructions yeah. to install it are on the internet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. like oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it sounds like you're a bit of a Honda guy, which is great, by the way, in my yeah. opinion. I have my Honda yeah. t-shirt on underneath my AM shirt today just nice. for this. Yeah, Honda, uh, Honda, and, Honda and Mazda. Honda and Mazda, where I live. There you go. There you yeah. go. I'm, I'm, a, I'm 100% near court on that one. So my, my next project after the student that you guys are going to really love is a, um, I'm hoping to build, and this kind of goes back to my college years, is I drove, you know what a Carmen Ghia is? Yeah. You do, huh? Yeah. Right. Those are cool. Yeah, really cool. So I had several of those in college and high school days. August, my buddy Brian Kono is going to start the fab on the chassis. We're making a, I'm making an all carbon fiber body for a Carmen Ghia. You are um, not. This, oh no! On top of that, it's going to be a tube chassis that's essentially a BAC mono sort of a chassis with a turbocharged K24 in the middle <sighs> of it with a suspension gearbox and center seat. That's cool. You're going to be like. 
you're gonna be like the most styling performance classes guy ever. Like It'll be I don't even understand you right now. That's amazing. It's gonna be a riot. Oh, oh man. man, are you gonna are you gonna yeah. race it in anything, or is it just gonna be like a this is what we oh, did? grocery getter? Oh. Gonna drive a working bag. Why is your life so, so much cooler than mine? Like a <laughs> my scooter, my Scootabaker is my grocery getter at the moment. <sighs> See, this is reminding me that I don't have any class. This is amazing. <laughs> you're you're Hanukkah. You knew you knew about SQKs and K twenty fours. Come on, man. No, that's fair. That's fair. I feel like though with yeah. the Carmen, I feel like though with the Carmen Gia, it's kind of one of those ones where it's like. If you want pretty much like a 911 mixed with a 944 with a bit of classic like 360 styling, but you don't want it to say Porsche anywhere, you get a Carmen Ghia. Right. right? Like, yeah. I pretty, that's pretty much where you're at, right? You want all the benefits of these cool things, but you don't want it to say Porsche and you still want it to be of the era, you get one of those. So, okay, so yeah. let me ask you. Let me ask you. So, you're, sure. you're an engineer, you know, you're working your way through cars, you, you decide to find AM. Did you find yourself more on the engineering side like did you develop a business from the engineering side saying this is something really cool that i have a technical background to build and i see an opportunity here or is this more from like a business side of i see a need of the market and i'm smart enough to work on this i wish i was smart enough to be either one of those but i'm not um <laughs> the, I, and i'll tell you why so it was kind of a necessity and here, mm-hmm. here's what happened back in uh the late 80s mm-hmm. as we discussed the fuel injection started taking over carburation so my job as the R&D guy at Weber Carburetor for North America was coming to an end. My then employer, Peter Newerth, who's got an own red line and impact, said, look, you know, this is going to go away. Uh, how'd you like to be start a business? I'll do it with you. You do a business plan, blah, 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 which I did. And I worked on it diligently. And at the same time, I had a buddy that worked at Air Resources Board that I became friends with, a fellow Cal Poly guy named Robert Sullivan. And Peter, at the last minute, decided not to do the partnership deal with me because he had some personal things he had to handle. But but the die was cast at that point. You know, my job was ending. Mm-hmm. So here's necessity knocking at the door, but opportunity at the same time. And Bob is also, God, he was a brilliant, brilliant engineer. He's psychotically smart guy. I called him and said, hey, you know, I got this thing I got to start. You want to do it? And literally, we had we had about five grand to our names at that time. So, it was, you know, we might as well. What are we going to do? We're 30 years old. If we fail, we still have a lifetime ahead of us. So, we did. And here's the interesting thing. I'll tell you the story of how AEM almost didn't exist. On September 30 of 87, inside of the Redline building, which we had sectioned off the R&D section, we built this chain link fence around it and a wall, and it had a bunch of equipment, a lot of old Weber carburetor stuff that I had to buy. Mm-hmm. Inside that building, I had an Aston Martin Lagonda. Mm-hmm. I had a Lamborghini Mira SV. <sighs> I had a Stangolini Formula Junior, a Lotus 23B, a Lotus 17. Wow. All in the shop, right? Now, these cars belong to various... Friend, they belong to Peter North, Steve mm-hmm. Murphy, who was my boss at Peter's place, um, stuff like that. And this buddy of mine and I, John Anderson, were talking, and I go, "Hey, JA, the morning opening morning, the deal I did with Four Wheel and Off Road Magazine was, if you guys give me a credit card size ad in the bag in the back of the magazine, I would be happy to do uh, dyno work for you, so you could verify the dyno power on all these cars you're testing." Sure. Which they said, "Great, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, great deal." 
So opening day comes, or the night before, and I'm talking to John and said, hey, why don't you help me push all these cars over to the machine shop area there so I don't have this Jeeps and stuff and all these magazine guys coming in that could lean on an aluminum car and hurt it, right? John was, he was in a t- wanting to go have a beer at Hermosa Beach, and he said, you know, mate, why don't we go have a beer instead? Because with your luck, we're going to have an earthquake, and all those brake rotors will fall on those cars, and that'll be the end of it, right? <laughs> like, ha, ha, ha. Me being the lazy guy I am said, let's go have that beer. So we did. Hmm. And if you look up on your computer October 1 of 87, that's when the Whittier Narrows earthquake hit. And where those cars would have been, it rained brake rotors from the pallet rack. And there was chips in the cement for 100 feet. Yeah. And it was like, oh, my God, those would have been, that would have been the end. It would have yeah. never started. Yeah, an earthquake yeah. would have made you bankrupt. And I went to John and said, God damn it, dude. Don't ever say that again. <laughs> or at least make it to raise money. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I get that. So, okay, so here's a question. So, you know, you were you were mentioning the um, off-road magazine ad and how you kind of exchanged nano time for ad space. And, and I guess, you know, with a company as well-known as AM, when you first started, like, how did you decide how to market? Like, how and where to market? Like, where did that... Where does that come from? Where does that strategy come from? A lot of my roots were off-roading. I did just tons of stuff. I used to work with the Mears Brothers and Ivan Stewart and Cal Wells and Walker Evans, all those guys, right? So I had a kind of a built-in name in that arena. We did the, when I was at Weber, I developed a carburetor that was really successful in off-road racing. And so I had a kind of a built-in market there. So we started building Honda V6 is a legend engine. So back then, Porsche was the engine of choice in class one buggies. And I had a customer that wanted to use the Acura V6. And the beauty was you build it for less money. It will last an entire season instead of two races. It didn't have as much power as a Porsche, but it had enough power. Off-roading isn't all about power, just like shipping cart versus tag cart racing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. A lot of technique. So we ended up with a built-in customer base there. Also, because of the affiliation to so all those cars I mentioned that were in the shop, my, my customer base back then was all the vintage people. We'd go to the Monterey Historics because we're really well-known for doing rubber carburetor and ignition stuff and things like that. So we ended up at the store. So my, my customers, this is going to sound a little interesting, so like Carol Shelby, Bill Hill, and Joe DiLoretto. Not small names. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, Shelby brought us remember the 24 continuation of the 24 Culver's that he made that he actually ultimately got busted for doing. Uh, we did all the fuel systems on them and Phil and Vaughn. I don't know if you know much or who Phil Hill is or what he uh, did. So, so kind of if you go down through the right of the hills, right in my order, the way that it goes in my head is Damon Hill, Phil Hill. Graham Hill, as far as my hills of the hills that I love. So continue. There you go. The <laughs> Not necessarily the Hills Brothers, but Hills for sure. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's see? So you know. And mm-hmm. Phil was a great guy, and he, he brought us, he had, he was restoring Jimmy Clark's Lotus. And it had rubber carburetors, a Coventry Pilot Climax engine in it. So we brought it down, we did the dyno work, and actually we became pretty good friends. And I have pictures of me and him at Shelby's birthday party once back in, I think, 98 or something like that. And a bunch of, like, Danny Wyand and other people were all just kind of chilling at 
at that place. And Phil was, God, he's the most gentle, nice individual for what he did in racing. And then to sit down and talk with that guy, he, mm-hmm. he's the dude you wanted to have a beer with. Yeah, so when, when, you, when you drive F1 and then win Le Mans and then win the 12 Hours of Sabrina, like you get the like permission to have a huge clout. And just from what I've read of the guy, he seems super nice. Super good guy. Yeah, yeah. literally he was not full of himself at all. This, and you know what? There's a lot of guys that are like, some people have a bad perception of certain racers that, oh, oh this guy must be an a-hole or something like that. I don't think that they're sometimes given a chance to prove they're not an a-hole. Some do, by the way. Some certainly prove that they are. But there's a lot of them that get kind of a, a not such a good reputation mm-hmm. for no reason at all that I could see, at least. Mm-hmm. At least first based on my experience with them. So, okay, so you have this background in off-road, so it helps you kind of make inroads because you've got customers that you can work with and et cetera. So somebody new who's, let's say, starting a business now hears that. What advice would you give them based off of your experience? How would you say, you know, this is what I would do if I was doing it today? If I was doing it today, so what I've learned <laughs> is back, so first off, things have changed quite a bit for us, obviously. We used to be a service and a dyno and tuning shop. but but. The most important thing that we grasped onto was to be as honest as you can. You know, so so if someone's a customer, this business, this world in the automotive world is very, very tiny. It may seem big, but things happen with repercussions that happen, and especially with social media today, mm-hmm. it is as fast as it could be now. So back then, we made the commitment, like, you know, true to ourselves, we've got to follow what we do. We did a lot of dyno work back then. We did a lot of stuff to make ends meet. We'd work on not anything, but a lot of stuff, you know, everything from off-road trucks to these lotuses and stuff like that. What we didn't do was get involved in like great jobs for someone's Pinto. Mm-hmm. We kind of had to stay focused to more performance tuning and drive ourselves to the performance aspect of things. But we also had to, you know, it, hey, there's, this is no one's perfect. We would screw some things up and you know, you have to eat it. And yeah. then other things, you know, you do real well. And if we, we had a lot of customers that kept coming back because you'd be honest with them, you know, and just say, Hey, uh, this is this is where you stand and we need to fix this or that. We also were super lucky geographically. We were right in the middle of Honda, Toyota, and Nissan when they're all in Gardena and Torrance, right? And Motec. Uh, they were just beginning, and so they were down the way, and the guys from D.C. Sports, Derek and Daryl, they were friends. And we had one of the few dinos that you could publicly just walk up to and ask to use the dyno for the day or, or whatever, and we would provide that service for whoever wanted it. So with Toyota, Honda, and Nissan, all three companies would use our dyno. TRD would come down when Mike Kojima was there and the Nissan, of course, right? Yeah. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Mike, had, Mike had a white Mustang that was one of my fave cars. And that's when we became pretty good friends. And when he brought that car down, this guy brings down this Mustang that was a total road racer. Dude, that thing is so bitched. It <laughs> sounded good. It did everything good. You know, you cracked the throttle and it was, the response was instant and all that. And we, we did dyno work on it for him. We had that. We had. The guys from uh, Nissan and the guys from Honda, a friend of mine, George Kuda, works at Honda, would always bring project cars down in. 
had, uh, I was a MoTeC customer back then. We had one of their first uh, wideband sensing system, the MoTeC box, as it was known as. Jim and George would bring us cars to do calibration with because they didn't have a dyno. So having the only dyno around was super helpful because now people that were in the South Bay area that needed access to a dyno had that uh, at a reasonable rate too, you know? So that propelled things. And then word of mouth, you know, the kid that worked for me, a guy named E.T., he uh, was a street racer. Not that I would ever condone such a thing, of course. No, uh, never. Mm-mm, no. No, no. no, no. I've no, no. <laughs> never, never been involved in a stoplight Grand Prix. Honestly. Never, ever, never. Mm, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's an interesting story about that. I'll tell you about one. <laughs> anyway, uh, E.T. would go out to the street races with us. He had an Integra, and E.T., he worked his butt off, and he's just a parts driver for me, but this kid hustled like crazy, and he ended up with, put, with moving cams and side drafts and headers and port work and all this on this little Integra, and he go out and spank these guys with Mustangs and just take their money from them all weekend long. <laughs> it was incredible, but boy, that really, really, really was some of the best advertising you could have had, because now hey, who's this AEM people? You know, what the hell? They got a little Honda that does this. Mm-hmm. So we ended up getting uh, a lot of customers that would come in that heard about it through that. So a lot of our business buildup initially was through through um, social engineering, we'll call it. You know, it kind of ground swells from there and starts taking off. And, and to be honest with you, it was from 87 to 97, it was a pretty tough slog because it was great. We were one of the few people that started with this. Us and Oscar Jackson were two of the few that really worked a lot with Hondas. And, uh, you know, then people started coming on. And you, if you remember the Sport Compact boom of the early 2000s, so after the Fast and Furious, remember SEMA mm-hmm. was all about neon glow and import this. Now look where it is. Anyway, so it, it kind of ground swelled up to doing stuff with people. We were first, I think, one of the first companies that battled the imports. And I had done a... Uh, it was interesting. So we go to the Battle of the Imports, and we had Abel Abera and this guy named JJ had a Mazda, and all these guys. We were in Compton back then. Everyone would be at our shop. And then Battle of the Imports, Frank says, oh, there's going to be a big drag race at Palmdale. And he did the first two or three, and I thought, God, we got to get in on this. And so we asked about sponsoring, and he says, yeah, you know, you could have a booth there. And it's just, it's just a dumbass me does. I had just converted a uh, Ferrari Boxer to fuel injection with three or four three-barrel throttle bodies on it from TWM. And we just done it. And I drive it down to this Battle of the Imports. We set up our booth with our chairs and our easy up and all that stuff, trying to look cool. All these import cars, these little Mazdas and Hondas and stuff like that, would kick the living crap out of that poor boxer. <laughs> going <down the> yeah. <laughs> People are like, why do you bring this thing here? Yeah. Like, yeah, I tried to showcase what we could do. I just sure. was trying to showcase it on the wrong damn car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's almost like saying, well, I'm trying to like turn you on to Magnum PI, but instead people want M&M and you're like, shit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 It's all, all part of know your audience, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, so here's another question though. So if, if a lot of AMs, um, 
kind of decision-making development is a lot of um, event coordination, maybe a little bit of opportunism as the timing is right, maybe with the industry and stuff. Do you guys have any like formalized way of how you kind of make decisions either? Or do you, is it just sort of a, we build cool stuff as we see cool stuff and then people buy the cool stuff we build? I guess it's kind of two-pronged. Um, well, are you asking in terms of marketing or product development? Well, at first, it was a marketing question, but then it kind of turned into yeah. a product development question because they kind of go hand in hand. Like you have to choose what you want to build, and then you have to choose how you want to market it to those people so they'll buy it. So, why don't we start with where you feel the most comfortable? I, I want to segue into something a discussion I was having earlier, but I want to start with answering your, you answering the question first. In terms of marketing, now compared to back then, things have radically changed since I partnered up with Peter and Greg back in '97, and mm-hmm. we're a lot more structured. Mm. A lot more formal. We we have this amazing marketing dude who I think you might know named Lawson Malika. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, he's great. The, it, marketing comes after product. Mm-hmm. And marketing doesn't necessarily dictate product. What dictates product need is two things. One of which the biggest thing is, is what do you hear out there? You know, Kirk Miller, our sales manager, he'll say, hey, can you make a... A low-cost, wide-band, O2 sensing gauge that everyone can use and easily install. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's a need. Because you know what? The Motec box and the MTK box each cost about five grand. And the sensors are 700 bucks each. Blah, blah. Trust me, mm-hmm. I know. Burned a few up. So there's a need. And so there, you ask your question, is there, is there a need? Can you provide it for a reasonable price to someone? Can you make it easily used because not everyone wants to build a space shuttle. Not everyone could afford a space shuttle and not everyone wants a space shuttle. They want something that they could easily use in their house. So that's, those are kind of main drivers. So then you look and you say, what, what does the market need? Now also in terms of other products, like we'll take water injections, a great example, water injections certainly existed before we did it. The question then becomes, yeah, but they have limitations, you know, how they're applied and how they're used and what's the ease of installation and stuff like that. So can we make it better? So whether it's an innovative new product like the wideband sensing stuff or an evolutionary product that we see a, an opportunity to make something better is what that, those are the main drivers. When we ignore that, by the way, is when we tend to get stung really mm. badly. Mm. Uh, and we've done that. There's some good, good examples of that. We try to drive the market as, as reasonable. Is there a need? Can someone afford it? And then it's up to Lawson in marketing, which, so we'll develop it. We'll test it and develop it and go crazy with the thing. Once we're happy with it, then we turn over to Lawson in marketing. And he's a guy that dictates, okay, this is best suited to the everyday racer. This right. is best suited to a guy that's drag racing. And he'll focus his efforts to the venues that the people that we intend this product to go to, mm. uh, to their source of information like drag times or is it interaction now everything's done digitally right hardly any stuff right right but don't focus it towards that way that makes sense well I, the reason why i, I was asking is because I, I feel like with a company as eclectic as am it can be really easy to kind of fall into analysis paralysis of like what are we going to build oh. for what product for where um how much time do i want to spend on trying to see if this is even going to work and and you know and you know, we have this method that we work on and we, you know, we've talked to other, other uh, industry leaders about it where we kind of go through kind of a decision jam where we look at trying to iterate things quickly. 
And I was kind of curious about if AEM kind of fell into a similar, like had similar thoughts or processes of how they make decisions. Because I feel like sometimes when you have so many applications and so many markets and so, you know, such a limited budget, it can be really easy to just almost not do anything for a while or or just be concerned you might be wasting your time. And I didn't know if, like, how did AM manage to make decisions like that? Well, okay, so there's a lot of products that are easily seen, like that their fuel racer gauge. Our fuel pumps were very, that's just as obvious as it can be, right? right. But let's, let's take the dash. Back in, uh, we did the first Series 1 EMS, and uh, we decided, okay, it'd be good to look at a dash. But back then, we looked at the dashes, and the price of glass was crazy. So it would have been very expensive. I think in 06, I mentioned in a magazine article about uh, doing a dash system that I wanted to do. But even back in 06, still the cost of glass was so much that we didn't know if end users would like it. Now, internally here, the thing that people don't see is I'm on the creative end. I'm always wanting to push, 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 push. My business partner, Greg, and thank God he's here because he's the one that has the reins on me. Mm. And he'll say, all right, look, you know, I don't know the, the timing's right. This isn't going to be good for costs. Does it add value? Is the market there? Or whatever. So 06 is when I was talking about dashes back then. Then you think, oh, my God, how, how forward thinking was that? And maybe it was. But the problem was you couldn't afford to make it. Mm-hmm. And, oh, wait, wait, we could afford to make it. No one could afford to buy it would have been the problem. So making a dash that no one would buy was kind of stupid. Yeah. Now you fast forward to when glass is a lot more uh, reasonable and we have something that's a lot easier to develop with our, our programming experience. Everything You know, you learn as you go through life, no matter what you're doing, and you learn certain things. So now making a dash certainly became a lot more viable for us that we could make it at a price point where people could use it and afford it and put it in their car as opposed to back then. It would have been okay, I made this dash for 25 people, you know? Now we make a dash for tens of thousands of people instead. We had the internal fight. Greg and I went, God damn it, man, we need to do this. And he said, no, we don't, you dummy, we'll never sell them. <laughs> well, here we are. Now we sell them. You talk about analysis by paralysis. We were doing a, uh, a fuel injector program. We had planned on coming up with our own fuel injector. And we'd done staggering amount of research on it. We bought everyone's injectors. We were characterizing them, looking for weaknesses and all that stuff. And, you know, we, we had one that we thought was going to do really well, but then ultimately, and to be honest with you, we got a long way down. So we spent a, a tremendous amount of money doing R&D. I mean, you know, several hundred thousand dollars doing this. But ultimately we said, you know what? There's a lot of companies out there that are doing a damn good job. And the value we're going to add is incremental. Is it worth this to go fight with well-established names and companies for an incremental value that someone might not appreciate? So, so we ditch it, you know, yeah. even though it costs us a lot. I mean, a lot of companies are say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. As a matter of pride, I'm going to run out with this thing. Well, that's the best way to get paddled too. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and I mean, I think if we were kind of summarize it up, it's sort of um, make sure you have a good team, make sure you read the market to see if there's value kind of know like you say when to cut your loss like maybe plan to iterate quickly 
and maybe you know Lawson was the one that brought this up when we last talked. You know, he, he pitched this concept of going for signals versus home runs, and you know we've talked about this in a in a bunch of podcasts before because it really resonated with us about you know sometimes the way you win the game is by little hits and little progressions yeah. rather than trying to wait for the big you know mamma jamma that's gonna never come. Yeah. You know, the mantra is called grands make pounds. Hmm. That makes sense, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I was going from card to baseball all of a sudden. I was like, oh, that makes a shit ton of sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I guess one of the questions I always want to make sure I ask is, you know, if you met a new business owner on the street and you had one piece of advice to give them around kind of the promotion of their business, kind of getting started, kind of maybe how to make decisions in that space, what would you say? Uh, as far as getting started goes which is what you have to do before you do any of that, right? Is, first off, don't be afraid to get started. Because there's a lot of people that, there's a lot of coulda, woulda, shoulda out there. And everyone's got that. I, I've got that still on a few things. And you look at it and you go, well, was, if you never did it, it's a lost opportunity, which is worse than no opportunity, right? Sure. So first off, decide to do it. But don't decide to do it blindly. Also, you want to look at uh, where's, Where's the opportunity? Are you mm-hmm. going to provide something that someone needs? You know, mm-hmm. so and here's a great example. Back in the uh, early 90s, we were doing cold air intake systems. Mm-hmm. And today, if someone asked me if I wanted to do a cold air intake system, I'd run and hide <laughs> because the market is saturated with right. tons of them now. Right. So, so certainly you want to look and see what what is it people need? You know, but hell, whoever knew that people would want to hop in a car with a stranger in his car and get a ride somewhere. Who thinks of that? Here we are. I don't know if the wizard that did that thought back and go, huh, what a great idea. But what a damn great idea. You know, so if you're going to start, by all means, look and see if there's a hole you can fill. That's the easiest way to start. Because if there's a hole you can fill and you can do it reasonably and get it out to the masses, boy, that's a great way to start your business. And then you got to scale it. You know, you may not, my, one of my problems when we started AEM was we were very undercapitalized. Five grand mm-hmm. to start a company, seriously. Mm-hmm. And the real growth happened when I partnered up with Peter and Greg because, they, they, listen, first off, I'm a business idiot. <laughs> and I know R&D, I'm creative, but business-wise, I can I grow plant easier than a business. <laughs> but they have the great business. They had the foresight and said, we walked in this building right now and it's huge. And Peter looks and goes, one day this thing's going to be filled. And I go, are you crazy? This place is huge. It's massive. <laughs> and we'll grow into it. But he had the vision of where to go. And we had, right. geez, at one point we had 200 people in three buildings here. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, we've gone through a lot of growing and growing and growing and we actually grew by shrinking. Mm. Okay, wait, explain. Yeah, so back in the day, in the early 90s, when the fast and furious was hitting, right? Mm-hmm. We were growing like crazy. Also, DC Sports, good friends of mine, Derek and Daryl, they had DC. We used to do all the testing of all the headers back in the, the early 90s. Yeah, so they'd bring all, they'd show up with a Honda filled with headers, and they would just dyno every diameter and runner length and all that stuff. We just, all day spent, they'd buy the dyno for the whole day, lock the doors, kick everyone out and just run and run and run and run all day long. They made a, and they made a great product. I mean, amazing. 
good looking stuff lasted and it performed as they uh, specified, right? Right. It works, works like it should. Well, so here we have AEM. We had, back then we were very we, we in the early two thousands we didn't even do electronics. You know, the electronics didn't show up till oh four. Even though I wanted to do it, they had to build something. You have to afford building the EFI system isn't trivial. It takes a monster investment. Mm-hmm. And when I first did the deal with Peter Gray, Peter's like, oh, I'll never do fuel injection. I'm like, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, eventually we'll get our way. And of course now we're here we are. We had to build it up. So back then we had the intake and AEM, and I think we maybe had about 100 people here, and we had two buildings. Then we bought DC Sports. And so then we had all DC's employees. We had the facility in Corona, which is a palace. And then we had our two buildings here. And then we consolidated, and it got at one time we had almost 200 people. We're making exhaust, intakes, billet parts. Toyota, we did a ton of OEM business. We started when Scion first came out. They invited us over to see the first XB. We had to go to their facility with this rapid closing and opening door. And we got in and they said, could you start making accessories for this before we even launch it so we have a built-in market? Right. And yeah, yeah. Because I remember yeah. Scion had those aftermarket support products, right, when they first came out. Yeah, and that was like a big deal for them. They were like, they're all warrantied right. and they had, yeah, exhaust. Yeah, and had a, yeah I remember that. There you go. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. So here we are, this big machine rolling. We're making things from Subaru and Mazda and Mitsubishi and Chrysler and Chevy. And, man, we're making OEM air boxes and just, I mean, it was a monstrous machine, right? Mm. Then 2009 hit. And so here you are doing a million dollars a month with just OEM alone. Mm-hmm. And it's like someone walks into the light switch and goes, click, and that <laughs> million goes to 100K. Yeah. So now, yeah. So you have this momentum. I mean, business does have momentum. And so here we are, we're shuffling along. You got a lot of employee and equipment and capital investment, and it trickles down and slows mm-hmm. down because it's 2009. Undoubtedly, some of the worst years of my life ever. Uh, because here's the problem. We ended up having to lay off over 100 people. Yeah. How do you lay off? every? And listen, if you come to this building, and even then, when we had all those people, I could walk to that building and have a conversation with any one of them. We all knew each other's name, regardless of how big we are. Mm-hmm. And everyone interacted with everyone. Mm-hmm. And you had, you're pleasant with them, right? Now you're, here you are, laying off 100 friends, basically. Mm-hmm. And you go, every night I go home and say, where is this person going to get a meal for his kids next day? Mm-hmm. And it was gut-wrenching. It was absolutely gut-wrenching stuff mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And, and the only solace you could take in it is that, well, the company will survive. It had to. These are decisions Greg and Peter made. This is way past my pay grade. But the company had to survive, and the people that are here will still have a place to go and a way to feed their families and stuff like that. We ended up selling the intake and exhaust division, and and K&N and us, I've known K&N forever, and I used to use their stuff off-road racing, but we had a bit of a spat. They didn't like our dry flow filter because we were starting to take a ton of business from them. And uh, they ended up, we ended up in a bit of a court tussle, if you will, that never made it to court, thank God. And uh, they wanted a dry flow filter. But we ended up, after all that, we had approached them before and said, you want to buy the intake and exhaust division because we really want to focus on electronics because that was just starting and getting to be 
uh, a bit of a steamroller, right? And so here you are, you have this big machine with all these people. It shows how vulnerable you are to market changes and stuff like that. I'm like, you know what? Maybe it's better to downsize and focus hard on a, a core product like electronics and we'll let the intakes and exhaust go. So we end up selling the intake and exhaust division to K&N. They've done a great job on the OEM side, their, their OEM business, which is something they really wanted. Uh, they've done a super, super good job under the guidance of a guy named Kevin McClellan there. He's, he's killing it, man. Uh, they did good. The dry filter is what allows them to be in the OEM market, too. Right, all right. the stuff they do is all dry. So we ended up being smaller but bigger and better. Think that makes it. sense. With 150 less people, yeah. profitability goes up, right? Yeah, that's true. Because that's a lot of people yeah. you don't have to pay. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, and it was funny the timing you were bringing that up with 2009 because I was thinking about I, I graduated from my bachelor's degree in 2008. So it was right, it was like in the, right, right, in the fall of 2008. Yeah. And so um, my my nine to five for the longest time has been in kind of Fortune 500 technology consulting, but I almost made a move into the automotive industry just right before the market crashed. And that was kind of the big trigger that made me make the career choices that I had made kind of leading up to where I am now. Because at the time I was like, you know, what I'm passionate about is a luxury market. And so it'll be the first to kind of have to take a pause when the economy takes a tank. And I was new and fresh out of school. And so the whole idea of, you know, moving to another state just to get fired to not have a job didn't seem very appealing right um so i I moved up to washington and then kind of moved into technology and kind of moved into the consulting space um before you know i started kind of connecting up with chris and so um because the business acumen helped me with my automotive projects because i knew people plenty of people who could talk about product but maybe not so many who would talk about business or talk about strategy or talk about you know that sort of stuff and i only learned that through my you know a professional change but it was literally because of the market change uh, the market crash that made me make that decision otherwise i probably would have tried to play with race cards all day right which still sounds fun (laughs) but like (laughs) i had to think about what i was going to do yes it's apt it's apt that you know that you bring that up as that's the trigger for smaller to go bigger and and i guess really to kind of put a pin on that you know for for those listening i guess when you're planning the growth of your vision or your business, it's probably, it's important to have a vision of where you want it to go, but it's probably also good to think about what happens if something unexpected were to occur. Right. It's, it's great to have a plan when everything is always going to be growing and all everything is always going to be great. But you know, sometimes something completely out of your control happens when that just won't be the case. And what do you do? Can you, can you pivot? Well, can you, you know, what do you do? So. Yeah. And that's crucial. You're absolutely right. It's, it, when you you don't get to tell the market where to go. The market tells you where to go. <laughs> That's true. Because if, if I could tell the market where to go, I'd be a millionaire already. I would be done. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, yes, I would be too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, everybody would have yachts and it would be great. So. So, uh, you'd be at Monaco watching Kimmy fall off the second deck of his boat. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll be we'll be in touch because um, there there are other things I would love to rack your brain about, but otherwise we'll be here for six hours and then nobody will have gotten any work done. <laughs> so um, right, I know. Yeah, this is yeah, for sure. Cool. But we'll talk Thanks soon. Thanks a bunch, guys. Yeah. All right. All right, bye. As always, thank you all for listening. If anything in this episode got your gears turning, let us know on Instagram at Studio Road. We're a branding and consulting agency for the automotive market. 
and we always like to hear new viewpoints or ideas that our show inspires. All right, we'll see you next time.